Life can begin to unravel in simplest of ways. Matter of fact, before we do that, let's, let's have a, a word of prayer. And I know Mike has prayed. And, and I want to ask you to pray for Vanita Woodward. A lot of you may not know her. Uh, she's uh, a longtime member of her church. Tim Woodward, who plays the, um, I, I guess, kind of the rhythm keyboard um, for us in one of our praise teams. Uh, she's had liver issues for years and years and been on the transplant list and that kind of thing. Well, they took her to the hospital um, to the emergency room this morning, and, uh, and the reports, initial reports, um, uh, are still vague and unclear. So we just kind of want to have a special word of prayer for her. And so would you just kind of bow your heads and, and just maybe close your eyes, and maybe you need a special word of prayer today. Uh, maybe for whatever it is that you're going through, uh, and, and I don't need to know what you're going through, but you just say, Pastor, would you just pray for me, just, just my situation, my heart, my home, my my life, just stuff going on, uh, maybe you just, by an uplifted hand, just would say, you know, Pastor, remember to pray for me, would you? Just, boy, a lot of hands going up, and, uh, and I appreciate that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I ask this morning that you bless Tim and Vanita Woodward. Lord, we lift them up to you, and you're the great physician. All of the other doctors here, and we appreciate their talent and their abilities, their wisdom and their skill, but they're practicing physicians. You're the great physician. They have to diagnose. You can put your finger right on the issue. And so, Father, we ask that you bless Benita and Tim, and Lord, just put a hedge of love and protection around them today. Father, I also pray for the many hands that were raised. Father, for, for hurts, for stresses, for issues, for problems, for cares, for concerns. Lord, whatever it is that is there on our heart, Father, you're the, you're the giver of peace. You're the initiator of hope. And I pray that you just speak to our hearts, Lord, through the message this morning. Lord, be closest to the heart that's hurting the most. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Life can begin to unravel on the simplest of days over the simplest of things. I'm going to sit and stand a little bit here today. I recently read about a kindergarten student, and I think a lot of us can feel her pain. She was helping one of her students put on his cowboy boots. He had asked for her help, and she could see why. Even with all of her pulling and pushing and tugging, man, those little cowboy boots just didn't want to go on those little feet. Finally, uh, when the second boot was on, she had worked up a sweat, and she almost shed a tear when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong foot. Well, she went through the same struggle to get them off because they were tight. And so she got them off and, and put them back on the, the right feet because she looked down there, they were. And, and uh, this time they got them on the right feet. It was only then that she announced that the little boy looked at her when she got them on the right feet. He said, well, you know, these aren't my boots anyway. These are my brother's. She bit her tongue rather than scream and said, well, why didn't you say so? 
And uh, once again, she struggled to help put the ill-fitting boots on the right feet. And finally, sweating and boy, just through this big, you know, ordeal, she finally gets the boots on his feet, goes to the back of the room, to the coat rack, gets his coats, you know, puts his coat on and says, Johnny, honey, where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots, you know, and... Um, The end of the article read, (laughs) the end of the article said her trial starts next month, you know, and um, we're not facing things that simple, I understand, because of the fallout of our cynical society and our sinful hearts. You and I are being programmed towards worry and fearfulness on being critical about everyone and everything. We see life unraveling all around it. We see it. We hear it. It killings in the workplace. Something as simple as black mold in your home. Weather disasters, fractured families, forest fires, divorce, economic woes, acts of terrorism, the homeless, fallen ministers, broken hearts, child abuse, spouse abuse, chemical dependence, deadbeat dads, scandals among CEOs and famous athletes and steroid use. Uncertain future, job insecurity. Man, we're living right there at it. One of the most common conversations I have these days with folks before I head off to teach a Sunday school class in the mornings is, what are you hearing about your job? Do you still got your job? And it's slow everywhere. You know, these are confusing times. And sometimes when you look at all of that list of things I just read and you try to compare it against a compassionate God, sometimes the answers can get a little confusing, can't it? Why in the world would God allow deadbeat dads or natural disasters? Why in the world would God allow airplanes to be used as missiles and go into towers on 9-11? How could God allow his chosen people, the Jews, to live in, uh, in bondage for 400 years? And sometimes when we ask questions, admit we get misunderstandings, and those misunderstandings cause us not to trust God. Because we can't make sense of it, the conclusion is God can't be trusted. Have you ever been there? Mike has? God, I can't figure it out. So I'll trust me instead of trust you. You're a logical God. You're a creative God. You're a redemptive God. You're an organized God, creative design God. But it doesn't quite add up here. So God, I'm going to help you out on this one, big fella. You've been there too, haven't you? Where, the, where when it, just trying to make sense of it all and trying to make sense of life just became so confusing... That it became this thing of being misunderstood. Remember Job? One day, it was a simple day. Life began to be unraveled. He lost his wealth and his children. And then several days later, probably, that it was that his life began to further become unraveled when he lost his health. Ten children of his were killed by a tragic natural disaster. His wife curses him. His friends hurl insults and accusations against him. Life completely unravels. And for what must have seemed like an eternity for Job, God said nothing. 
Go to Job 38. God speaks. The first three messages in the series, we've looked at Job and, and Job's part. And, and if I were going to ask you to sum up the, the theme of Job in one word, what would that word be? Go ahead and blurp it out while you're turning to Job 38. Anybody know? Sometimes we say the patience of Job. And some people say that the book of Job is about Job's patience. Listen, the book of Job is not about Job's patience. The book of Job is about God's grace. I want us to reorientate our thinking right now because it is not about Job. The focal point of the book is not about Job. The focal point of the book is God's relationship with Job. And it is clearly underscored, marked with, highlighted by, driven by this wonderful concept of grace. God speaks. Job sat silently through God's extensive messages. Matter of fact, look at chapter 38. It's great. God finally speaks. And here's what he does. And by the way, he starts at 38. And the Lord answered Job out of the storm. By the way, there was no bad weather. It was talking about the storm in his life, the conflict, the tension, the drama, the unraveling of his life. It was into that that God spoke to the hurt and the anguish, to the confusion, to the misunderstanding. That God speaks. And notice what God does. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel? With words, without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Basically he's saying, all right, Joe, for about 36 chapters now, your buddies and you have questioned me. Sometimes you and they have questioned my integrity. Sometimes you and they have, have, have questioned my trust. Sometimes you and they have questioned how I interact with you. And so, Job, I want you to stand up like a man, buddy, and I want you to man up, and I want you to answer these questions. And you have a series of questions until the end of chapter 41. Amazingly, God never answers Job's question. He doesn't even come close to those issues. Instead, he escorts Job around the universe and into the seas, introducing him to several of the animals of the field and the birds of the air. And though God doesn't answer Job's questions, before the end of the book, the man with boils is bowing in submission before the Lord. I want you to understand that at the end of the book, Job is submitting himself to the authority and the relationship of God, and he has received no answer. Not one. Matter of fact, he has asked bukus of questions by God that he does not give an answer to God about, because quite honestly, he doesn't know such things. Go to chapter 38. He said, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? And while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. He's saying, Job, do you know how all that works, buddy? Do you understand how the physical world works? 
Who shut up the sea behind the doors? And then it burst forth from the room. Verse 9, when I made the clouds a garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed it for limits and set it with doors and bars upon place, and it just goes on, hobnobbing around the universe, inside the animal world and inside the, 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 the oceans and then back out into outer space and, and even into the Hamley realm and referring to, to angels. Though God doesn't answer Job's questions before the end of the book, Job is submitting to the authority and to the grace of God. The one who permitted, in fact, personally approved of what would happen to his servant Job. He offers no answers to the man's specific questions. And yet, I repeat, Job humbly submits. Not because he received an answer but because he experienced God's grace. See, now, a lot of us are going to be faced with a choice. When we're hurting, when we're doubting, when we're confused, when we have those times of lack of trust or misunderstanding, we got to decide, do I want the answer or do I want God's grace? If you want answers, I don't know if you'll understand it any more than you understand how the Lord formed the foundations of the world or hung the stars out on nothing to shine. Or what makes angels sing in the glories of heaven? But what will satisfy your soul? What will bring comfort and peace is not answers, but grace. Grace. We sing a lot about grace. There's a wonderful song. Grace, grace, God's grace. Evidently, Job learned something here that we all need to know. While we, like Job, will not have all the answers or even most of our questions answered, Job learned that there was something much more important than having our questions answered, and that's to experience God's grace. And when faced with the choice of life to have answers or God's grace, choose grace. Matter of fact, if you were to ask me the theme of the book, I would say it's grace. He, he learned more about God's grace than he could ever have learned from having his questions answered. Look at what Job learned. Go to Job chapter 42, and we'll kind of hang there in Job 42 for the rest of the text and the rest of the message. Look at what Job learned. He learned that there's nothing that God cannot do. In grace, grace taught him that there was nothing that God couldn't do. Look at verse 2. Job, verse 1 is Job replied to the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be thwarted. He said, there's nothing you can't do. God, if you wanted me to live in health, then I would have. If you didn't, I, I didn't. And, and there is nothing impossible for God. And by the way, that's one of those verses when we say with God, all things are possible. And we always say that when life is good. But you know what? It's kind of hard to pray that with God all things are possible when your back is up against the wall. Can I remind you that Job is still sitting in boils. His three kind of poor friends are sitting across from him. And his wife probably has not repented yet from cursing Job and wanting him to die. He's had two chapters of questions from God, but there has been no change in his life except that he has now experienced grace. He's still grieving over the loss of his ten sons. He, he still kind of is clueless about what he's going to do for, for wealth and, and substance and, and, and doesn't have a, have a clue 
how to get rid of the boils all over his body. But he got something better. He got grace. And grace taught him that there was nothing that God cannot do. And I do not know what you're facing, but I believe the truth of Scripture, that with God all things are possible, that there is not anything too hard for God. We believe that God is sovereign, he's omnipotent, and that God is in control. This day, tomorrow, the next day, and on the last day, he is and forever will be in control. That is a grace truth. That is, not, that is not a static answer. That is not a true or false. That is not a multiple choice. That is not a scantron test. That is a grace truth. And Job also said, not only did he learn that, but grace taught him that it's impossible to frustrate God's plans. Look at the end of verse 2. Nor his plans can be thwarted. Job's choice of words says that God's purposes cannot be blocked, that God's purposes cannot be restrained, that God's purposes cannot be stopped. His intentions can can neither be altered nor disrupted. What God purposes, God will bring it to pass. Why? Because he is God and he can do what he wants to because he is God. And so if God can do everything, then I'll trust this one who can do anything and I will submit to him and live not in the realm of answers, but live in the realm of grace. Now, I'm not talking about blind faith here. I'm not talking about about not understanding theology and doctrinal truth. I'm, I'm not talking about searching deep in scripture for answers. I'm just telling you that sometimes when we hurt, the greatest experience you need is not an answer from God. The greatest experience you need is the grace of God. By the way, Job couldn't explain it, but if you look at verse 3, you see his explanation. Job says, you ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Job says that was a question that God posed in chapter 38, 39 and 40. Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He says, you know, I I sat down with my buddies and I thought I had it all figured out. But the ways of God are so above me, so beyond me, so far surpassing me that I can never figure it out. And his ways are so beyond me that even if God could explain it, my puny mind could not understand it. I have no, if you were to know the story of my life, and, and, and we threw a surprise birthday party for my, for my older brother. He turned 50, turns 50 this week, but we, we drove down Thursday and had it Friday, came back Saturday. And, and so there were a lot of people that were there that had a huge impact on our life. Jewel Whitaker, whose husband has gone on to be with the Lord, he baptized both my brother and I. He married Terry and I. Just people and families that had huge spiritual impact on my life. And they would ask me about Kirby, and I would just think, how in the world do I describe this to them? Because, you see, when I grew up, I only knew of one full-time pastor. I did not know a missionary. I did not know what home missions was. I didn't know what foreign missions was. First missionary I ever saw in my life was at Bible college. 
Our church was about 40 to 50, and every church I ever knew ran about 40 or 50, except for Brother Holbert Ashby's church that would run about 350, 400. I didn't have a clue. And if you were to go to tell them that when Mike Trimble knelt down at the altar at East Dayton Free Will Baptist Church when he was seven years old, that at 16 God would call him to preach, at 20 he would go off to Bible college, he would try to take a little trip around North Carolina and then a little bit in Kentucky and finally end up in Michigan, the arch enemy of the Ohio State Buckeyes, and be here for 15 years as a missionary to the Wolverine community. They would look at you and go, uh-uh, buddy, ain't never gonna happen. And, and you know what? In some things in life, you look at it, and you just gotta say what Job said in the verse 2. Surely I speak of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Do you understand what God had to do to bring you and your wife together? Have you ever just kind of had to jot out the circumstances? It's phenomenal. My wife was born in Alaska. She was raised in Georgia. I was born in Ohio. Didn't even have a clue that Alaska was part of the United States of America. We met, and by the way, Valentine's Day was the anniversary of our first date. Oh, don't ah. If she was here, it would have been a good time to ah. And we started dating simply because a friend of hers, because I wasn't getting serious with anybody, because a friend of hers asked me if I would ask her out to kind of send a message that she just didn't want to get serious with anybody wanted to date around. Well, that was fun to do. And 27 years later, we're still together. Have you ever thought about how God has to orchestrate things too wonderful for us? See, a lot of times we think that when, God, when things go well, it's too wonderful for me to explain. But do you know the same love and grace is at work when it's your absolutely worst day? God did not love Job any less when he lost his camel and he lost his sheep and he lost his donkey and he lost his oxen. God didn't love Job any less when it's the day that his children died. God didn't love Job any less when he hurt so deep and the wound cut even deeper when his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? God didn't love Job any less on his worst day than he loved Job anymore on his best day because love exists in the realm of God's grace and that is what Job finally experienced in all of his hurt. Man, it's incredible stuff. Philip Yancey wrote, I can think of several, th- several helpful things God could have said to Job. Job, I'm truly sorry about what happened. You've endured many unfair trials on my behalf, and I'm proud of you. You don't know what this means to me and even the entire universe. That would have been a cool thing to say to Job. A few compliments might have been nice, a dose of compassion, or at least a brief explanation of what might have transpired on the other side of the curtain. Yet there were no answers, but there was plenty of grace, redeeming grace, unmerited grace, restorative grace, protecting grace. God gave no answer. His reply is a series of questions, and then he plunges Job into a magnificent, in, in chapter 40 and verse 41, 
he starts talking about goats and donkeys and ostriches and eagles and speaking as if astonished by his own creative authority and power. Of all the moments, why God didn't, why did God choose to give Job a course in wilderness appreciation? His book, Wishful Thinking by Frederick, and I can't say his last name, he has a German name, but Freddie. He sums up God's speech this way. He said, God doesn't explain. Listen to this. God doesn't explain. God explodes. He asks Job who he thinks he is anyway. He says that to try to explain the kind of things God wants explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal his grand design. Listen to me. God doesn't reveal his grand design. God reveals himself. Isn't that great? God is more interested in revealing himself to you when life unravels than he is revealing the answer to you. The problem is we focus in, I want the answer. God, I want the answer. Let me know why. God says, no, I am more than enough to overcome the why. His grace. The message behind the splendid poetry boils down to this. God is saying to Job, and I want you to listen. God is saying to Job in chapter 38, 39, and 40, God is saying to Job, he says to you and I, until you know a little bit more about the running of the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. Ouch. Boy, there's a lot of us who want to tell God how to run the moral universe, don't we? Job is whined throughout the book. He he would ask God, why are you treating me so unfairly? You ever done that with God? God, Jesus, just put yourself in my place. Do you know the answer to that question? The answer will always be when you say, God, would would you put yourself in my place? God says, no, you're to put yourself in my place. Amen? I've already sent my son to stand in your place. Now, in grace... You're to stand in my place, and until you can offer lessons on how to make the sun come up each day, or whether to scatter lightning bolts, or how to design a dinosaur, don't judge how I run the world, just trust me. The impact of God's speech on Job is almost as amazing as the speech itself. Although God never answers one question about Job's predicament, the blast from the storm flattens Job. And remember in the very first lesson in the series, Job got down on his face and he submitted himself. He does it again. But this time it's not from the pain of loss. It is from the joy of grace. Do you know what Job finally sees? Job finally sees God. And that's enough for Job. He experiences the fresh water of grace. And that's enough for Job. He he experiences the splash of God's love. And that's enough for Job. Matter of fact, look at verse 9 in chapter 42. Follow along with me. This is great stuff right here.
by the way, after the Lord had said these things to Job, now he's addressing Eliphaz, the, the Tamanite. And it's in that context that he says this, starting in verse 9. So Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophor, the, that guy, did what the Lord told them. And he accepted. He accepted Job's prayer. After Job prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All of his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave a piece of silver and a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen and and a thousand donkeys. He said he also had seven sons and three daughters. Evidently, he and Mrs. Job had made up. And the first daughter, he named Jeminiah, the second, Keziah, and the third. And by the way, in in the culture of that day, Those are names that can be associated with grace. Grace. Look at verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. That's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. And so he died. Old. And full of years. I want you to see it. The Lord accepted. There are four verbs. Four grace verbs there. From verse 9 to verse 12. And and underline them in your Bible. I want you to see it. The Lord accepted. The Lord restored. The Lord increased. And the Lord blessed. The book of Job teaches about grace. When he had blessed Job... He doesn't bless a perfect man. He blesses an imperfect man. If Job were a perfect man, he wouldn't be on the ground repenting. If he had said the right thing, he wouldn't be repenting. When are we going to get it? Because of God, because of his grace, God wonderfully blesses us. And he does it better than anyone. See, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. Now Job's boils are gone. He hires some more men. The camels return home. The men start building. Money starts coming in. Children are being born. And he's blessed more at the end of his life than at the beginning of his life. Not because Job was patient, but because God is gracious Not because he's patient, but because God is gracious. That's great news. Because when your life, when my life unravels, it's not the answers you need most. It is the presence of God's wonderful grace. Would you bow your heads for just a moment and close your eyes? And for whatever it is, the storm in your life... It is grace that allows you to live in peace. It's grace that brings you comfort. 
It's grace that gives you the right perspective. It's grace that soothes your soul. It's grace that gives you strength under the load you bear. It's grace that allows you to experience the presence of God. Grace. Grace. Next week, we're going to wrap up this five-part series, When Life Unravels. And maybe you're here today and you've looked for answers. And in your journey of looking for answers, you have just missed completely something far better, God's grace. And looking for answers, you've probably had misunderstandings about God's goodness. But today, experience His grace. Job fell down flat. And I just simply invite you either to kneel at the altar or right where you sit and just say, Dear Lord, more than answers, I want your grace. I can identify with Job talking about things I don't understand, trying to comprehend things that are too wonderful for me. Now this morning, I don't know where your deepest hurt is. I do know where your best help comes from, and that's the grace of God. Would you stand to your feet and let's pray together? Lord, in just a few moments, we're going to give us an opportunity to respond. And Lord, maybe some folks just need a quiet place to pray in their seat, or maybe they just feel compelled to come and pray at an altar prayer, to look to you, not to answers, to trust your grace, and not their own inadequate conclusions of the matter. Father, I pray. Lord, for protective, restorative, healing grace grace that soothes the soul and calms the heart grace that places trust in the grace giver God himself and Lord for whatever we face in the future we put it in the realm of your grace for whatever we're experiencing in the present we drop it in the lap of your grace because we trust you every second of every day with the physical universe without wondering how electrons and protons and neutrons hold a chair together or create friction so tires can grab on a road and get us to church or even understand the the intricacies of oxygen Lord, may we trust your grace. May we trust your grace. Because grace accepts. Grace restores. Grace increases. Grace blesses. Hey, would you just 
real quiet as Mike just plays for us for a second. If you just want to, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray without me saying something. All right. If you want to pray where you're at, if you want to kneel at an altar, I just want you to pray.